Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Welcome to the first in our Words of Wisdom webinar series, which builds on the success of our, our weekly COVID updates. The format for this webinar is going to be bringing you insight from a senior NHS leader every month, uh, exploring the challenges they face, how they're responding to them and their, their priorities that lie ahead uh, for the short and the longer term. So really getting into the, the nitty gritty of what's going on in the NHS. The idea here is all about connecting you with the people who are leading the NHS, uh, rather than you giving our commentary from an outside perspective on, on what they might be doing. With that in mind, uh, setting the scene for, for future editions, I'm joined by my colleague David Thorne, uh, who in his NHS role is a non-executive director with the Well Up North Primary Care Network in Northumberland, um, and very experienced uh, across both the NHS and, and the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we're going to be reflecting on the insight we've received from our NHS associates over the last few months throughout COVID, relay a bit about what we've been hearing, how things are developing, and contextualising it all around uh, the things you're going to be interested in. So what does it mean for market access? What does it mean for the future arrangements within the NHS? How is that going to impact on you in your day jobs? Uh, for the first time, we're going to try and accommodate questions as we go. Uh, we've had a lot of questions submitted in advance, so we're going to try and work to those as best we can. If you feel that you want to ask something, please type it into the questions box uh, on your right-hand side, and we'll try and get to those. It might be towards the end, uh, and we'll see where we go. So, David, um, can you just reflect, reflect briefly uh, on the last four months in terms of what you've seen, what you've heard from our NHS colleagues uh, and, and th how things have changed over time? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, very quick summary. Unprecedented change, I guess, certainly in, in, in my lifetime. That's not unexpected to say. Far-reaching change. Much of it will be permanent, not temporary. I think a thing that you and I and, and people we talk to out there in, in the system uh, refer to a lot is most of that change was actually happening before and and the COVID period has been a, a catalyst to it in in a couple of places maybe an inhibitor as well but mainly a catalyst but none of it is a surprise and and the things that I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about in this call most of those seeds were were set well before COVID so a strange time of surprises and things that shouldn't be a surprise of big changes um, a critical mirror held up to the NHS. I think that's fair to say. Let's not get carried away with Thursday clapping and rainbows. Let's let's be frank and honest about some of that. And um, and maybe also for those of us in the industry too, the people who are on this call and and people like you and I. This has held up a mirror to some of the things that we've done, and uh, we should be using this period to to really reflect and move forward. And what, what will be a couple of those biggest reflections from an NHS perspective, do you think? Um, I think uh, um, one of them particularly is the role of commissioning and contracting and the financial transactions. So we'll probably come back to that. There was, um, I think what has surprised everybody, initially there was a pleasant surprise about shutting down and turning off. And then the difficulty of the restart and restore and um, even the most well-prepared, well-organized organizations and well-led organizations are clearly challenged by that. I, I don't hear anybody out there who has a magic answer for some of those questions. And we're bound to go through some of that as we go through. Um, just a slight aside, just before we did this call, um, I was talking to a very senior GP in the south of England. And they, they were telling me that... Um, they're going to do everything in their power to resist moves to take them more down a route of remote consultations. They see it as a fundamental thing of being a clinician that they want to have hands-on face-to-face contact with patients and they need that soon 
And so there's some really interesting already, you know, we haven't rehearsed these questions or these answers we promised, but there's some interesting kind of pulls and pushes. There's catalysts, there's inhibitors, there's things that are going right, things are going wrong. There's the, these levers. It's a very, been an extremely interesting time, but of um, severe and very sad consequences, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we will, we will come back to some of those specifics a little bit later. Uh, you, you also mentioned sort of a time for reflection for, for the industry or healthcare industries. There are a couple of things that you could pull out of that that you think have been particularly impactful. Yeah, there's the obvious thing, which is is the industry. We've both worked in it and carried the bag. And what, what we were taught about face-to-face -face consultations, some of the, for, um, one of the things I've done is quite a sad thing the last couple of days. Somebody I, I saw as a mentor and a leader of mine, uh, um, sadly has died recently. A guy who's a legend in the industry, Jim Melling. And um, I can remember Jim telling me, it's all about the last three foot, okay? It's the contact between you um, and, 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 a, and a healthcare professional. And you think, well, that's we haven't been able to have that for five months, um, and perhaps it'll be a while before we have that again. So that's that basic thing. But the other thing, which I think we'll return to a lot, and of course is is central to what we do at MTech Access, is the whole aspect of what is value and how do we measure value. And uh, one of the positive things I've seen in the NHS is um, you and I have worked in management roles in the NHS, and perhaps one of the reasons we didn't want to do that much more was just how much of that or how little of that before was focused on real patient care. And then for the last five months at every level from Simon Stevens down to whoever, um, the focus has been how do patients move through the system? How do we do that? How do we get that material out? And I think it's, it's, this is a wake up call to let's say the industry in general, pharma, med tech, agencies like us. We really have to go back to some of the things that we were, uh, some of the paradigms that we were used to and really reflect upon those because the whole nature of value and what is valuable has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've seen it all, all over the place, just resource after resource being thrown at dealing with the patients rather than supporting the, yeah. the, the embedded structures, haven't we? The setting up of nightingales, uh, deployment of staff from one part of the hospital to another, even across systems. And yeah, certainly a lot of what we've heard over the last couple of weeks is is about systems being freed up to really think radically about how do we change everything we're doing to make sure that, that patient is, is getting the right care. So I suppose with, with that in mind, um, thinking about the, the NHS response to the pandemic and, and everything that's developing, how does that align or impact with the, the NHS long-term plan? Yeah, well, it, it, I won't get tired of saying, you know, the, the new words, integration, consolidation, teamwork, so what are the words that have disappeared almost in a, an Orwellian sense? Competition, pluralism, pluralism, choice, independence. Those words are gone. Um, and you read NHS documents now and hold them up to the light. Or, you know, you, you know that one of the silly things I like to do, I do control F. So something will come out from NHS England and I'll put choice in under control F and you won't find it. Okay? You won't find pluralism in. You won't find competition, you won't find an internal market. So um, anybody who's younger than what, 55? The NHS that they've worked with or through or alongside throughout their whole career in England, those words have been really important and they're gone. And they were going anyway through the long-term plan. As you say, anybody should go back to that long-term plan and look, nothing is happening now that wasn't present in that. It's just happening, it's faster, and some of the detail is coming out. So I'm sure we're gonna cover this week, we've had yet another confirmation that payment by results in the internal market is gone. And that's come out again from NHS England. Um, so again, that, that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, so I think the, the long-term plan is clearly Simon Stevens' vision. It's supported by most people in the NHS, clinicians and managers. And um, if somebody war game through and said, if this is real, what's gonna happen? I don't see many things that are happening now that weren't um, prefaced in that plan. Um, mm. So it shouldn't be a time of surprises. It's just a question of pace. Um, but the first thing, again, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll explore in more detail, is the architecture's changed, the lexicon has changed. But for many of us in the roles of the people who are registered for this, it's the financial systems and the financial contracting systems 
and that's been the biggest change and that that'd be a massive massive change at every level in the nhs and a just final comment for me what is interesting is how few clinicians are aware of that mm. so now we have this situation where the system is completely changed the leadership and the management in the nhs know it but when um our friends who are listening to this are able to go out and re-engage they're going to re-engage with people who are just as disassociated from that as as many of us are outside the nhs yeah absolutely and we, we've had examples recently of and under uh, a freer contractual system as as the nhs is at the moment with pbr going and block contracts of, of services being radically changed in a very short space of time or, <laughs> or, or stopped altogether because the system can permit it now and, and not always with the total buy-in necessarily of, of clinical or, or, or vice versa. It might be clinicians saying that we can't sustain this anymore. So the, there's huge implications for the pace of change and that, that things might disappear overnight. And again, this week we've seen, um, which we might come back to later, the publication of the, the consultation on uh, the procedures of, of less clinical value. Can you just yeah. touch a bit on, on what that's, that might mean? Yeah, I, I, I think arguably, um, if you look at the, con the the conversations you and I have or the or the, the little huddles or the meetings we've been having on remotely with, with key people in the NHS, um, lots of focus on things like the people's plan, um, the PBR aspect, pathway changes. And then this document's come out, which is, colossally significant I've, I've really looked for any mention of this in the BBC um, you know the, the the proper broadsheet papers professional magazines seems to be very little so if, if guys out there are thinking what on earth they're on about this is document that it's been published by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges it's called evidence-based interventions subcolon engagement document basically let's call it what it is it's a rationing policy for the NHS. It lists 33, 31 procedures of, of so-called lesser value that's a consultation, but based on what happened a couple of years ago, it's almost certain to be forced through. Um, and it's really, really important, but where's the public debate? Um, is Boris Johnson talking about this or Matt Hancock or any other politician we've elected or, or you know, where's the Labour position on this? It's, it's a unilateral statement from NHS management really really interesting um but if you only do one thing is is look for that document and and have a think what it means for your product a little bit aside i'll come back tommy you, you mentioned uh, something i again we might talk about i mentioned there that some of the clinicians are, are kind of disassociated from what's going on i draw a slight distinction there between primary and secondary care so i think most gps know that the quaff has kind of been suspended they know the fan because they're closer to the financial systems of their practices but also through the development of PCNs, which we'll come back to. So I think, again, when our, when our friends there are, are engaging now with people, that's one of the differences between a typical consultant, say, and a typical GP. I think the GPs are much more aware that the financial systems have changed. Yeah, and, and just in terms of that, the COF is a really good example of something that's, that's stopped overnight and there's an expectation it might, might, might be back for 2021, but until we get there, who, who really knows? Think about it, that in terms of the impact on what care is delivered, how it's delivered, and from our audience's perspective, how that might drive behaviours in, in what, what's prioritised or not. Can you just comment a bit on, on how important COF is in, in driving behaviours? Yeah, well, it's, it's often been said, isn't it? Let's take a specialism. How many times you've been around with a company and, and they've said, well, um, uh, dermatology is not in the COF. Or some other specialism that you know that's an obvious one that i mentioned or um uh what was it the, last year or the year before i forget the the diabetes quaff was changed quite significantly and that, of course that's a, a really primary area within the quaff and that changes the whole nature of how people engage from the industry again the value propositions but definitely the activity um as everywhere quaff drives activity and behaviors it's been very successful and you've hinted there you know, um, we'll, we'll talk today. We'll talk from facts. We'll talk about informed views, and then just you and I. That's on the basis of all the people we out there who, who talk to us. So I think Quaff will come back. I think we probably both agree with that. Um, it's a technical aspect. We'll come to up to. I said PBR is going, but the tariff 
all the evidence I've seen is we will still have a tariff next year. And if people are interested, I'll explain that that's not a contradiction. I think we'll have tariff, but PBR will go. Um, but yeah, Coif changes behaviours, sequins change behaviours. They only affected a couple of percent of a hospital income. But when you've got an income of 800 million a year, whatever, 1% of that is crucial. So um, it's not just that the will the Coif stay, what will the Coif be? What kind of behaviours are people going to be led toward? Mm. We mentioned before about the rationing and those eight, uh, 31 procedures. There are already 17 that were established two years ago. They've been very successful in terms of driving down that activity. Why? Because they're part of the formal performance management of trusts and um, CCGs. That's why. And they're filtered through then in the, the quality schemes that go out to GPs. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, thinking about the, we've, we've had quite a lot of questions coming in about the backlog of, of patients and how, how the NHS is going to remobilise. I think that rationing element is inevitably part of that. If, if there's less to do, then it'll be easier to do it effectively. Um, in the, the same paper that you referenced earlier, there was a, uh, a message that the NHS is going to be realistic about managing organisations and supporting them, but at the same time, they want them to go as as far as possible, as fast as possible in getting activity back up and running. What, what else have you heard from, from people within the NHS about how the NHS will approach this uh, yeah. sort of dichotomy? Yeah, let's, let's take the different levels. If you think of the NHS strategically, we all need to keep our eye on, the, on um, wherever we get information from, because sometime between now, mid-September, what will happen is um, the Treasury will do a deal with the NHS. So the Cabinet will do a deal. They'll look at the, the fiscal financial position, which is obviously extremely difficult, and say, this is what the NHS budget is. What Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens will have to do is do a deal with the Treasury on things like waiting times, because it's the waiting times and the key indicators that get governments appraised and affect us electorally. So already this week, there's been discussion about the A&E target and how that might be amended. Right, this is where we get into the, the, my personal view, but informed view. I think we're heading for differential waiting times. The, the cancer weights um, are a precedent to that, and I think we're going to get different things. So when, it, when I was last in an NHS role, in a performance role in a huge PCT, it didn't matter whether you're having a wart off your finger or you're having a heart transplant, you had the same waiting times. Okay, And then they brought in the differential cancer ones. I think we're heading for something like that. And this will be tied in as well to the independent sector aspect. So there's macro policy and then there's the micro stuff. When you're at the micro operational level, I'll look to you, Tom, to agree or disagree. Whether you're a practice manager, an operational manager in the hospital, at the moment, nobody knows how on earth they're going to do this. The, the challenge of this is absolutely immense. So I think it comes back to, to what you were saying, the supply and demand. So rationing will have to come in, differential waiting times, patients will be expected to work in different ways. I can, I would expect that um, ICS, CCG level, um, there's an enormous block contract that's been bought with the independent sector and there'll be performance managed on how they max that. And it's gonna be very interesting how they build that in with patient care. But um, is, that, is that a case that if, if there's been 100, 100 hip replacements bought by by NHSE, you better use those locally because they've been paid for. Is that the, the idea? Yeah, and, in, and those were long memories. About 15 years ago, um, under the Labour government, they sent up independent treatment centres. I don't know if people remember those, you know, through uh, Capio and Ramsey on the edge of most big cities. Right. Again, I, I was a director in a PCT and we had that performance management. So centrally, nationally, we've gone out and bought so many gynae operations, so many orthopedics, so many urology, and you had to use them. And if you didn't, because it was coming off your baseline of your finance. So, I, 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 but when we talk about it operationally, the more that say you and I talk to operational managers in the NHS, the more their heads in their hand. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if you, people listening, if you haven't gone out there and re-engaged, when you do, you're going to be absolutely astonished by the challenge that people have got. Um, the practical challenge of how on earth patients move through the system now, given the, 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 the COVID restrictions. 
and, and that'll be really interesting to see how it plays out at a, a national or a local level because we've again seen guidance from the Royal College of Surgeons on uh, stratifying different procedures into yeah. to how soon they need to be done effectively um, so will that well I suppose a lot of it is, is to be seen how much is going to be still that command and control that's that's really been evident through COVID and how much is is now going to be fobbed off locally to uh, to integrate care systems trust CCGs uh, and, and yeah and, and I think you, 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 we'll cover all kinds of things but if you look at it at a national level one of the things I'm interested in and um, you know when we do these sessions in the future, they will be words of wisdoms. Let's today, let's have comments of candor, should we call them, rather than <laughs> us being wise. And and some of that candor is things that some people in the NHS will find difficult to discuss. Like you just mentioned there, if people have have been out of contact completely, what they won't be used to is that magic work of triaging. Mm. And the way that now most vulnerable people across England are in what four groups, yeah. And let's be blunt. What some of those things are saying is, if you meet certain criteria in terms of your age or more likely your clinical status, you're going to be in a group which is basically, you're going to be left. It's a bit like end-of-life care in palliative care. They, um, you, know, it, it, you cannot expect to go and have that hip operation. You cannot expect to have that, uh, possibly that drug. There's some extremely difficult choices that are being made at the moment. And um, I don't mind those choices personally being made. But I think there ought to be an open public debate about them because it affects all of us rather than it being done by um, uh, executive decision within NHS organisations. So, so in terms of our, our audience thinking about a population that all need a replacement or a population all with a you know, particular condition, do you think that's going to prompt a need to have a slightly more nuanced view of that so rather than we have a population of a million patients in this country it's going to be well half a million of those aren't prioritized by the NHS and, and so we need to look more closely at others. Yeah I, th I think it will and um, I, I think there's going to be more engagement with organizations that are traditionally not seen as NHS which is as I said all, all of this is um, even before Covid if you went to your local spire hospital most of the activity that was going on in there was NHS, wasn't it? You know, um, it wasn't private in 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 the sense of people who could afford it going along and paying for an operation. It was mainly NHS people, um, but it was happening in the in the independent sector. Um, is that an area where pharma companies have put attention in the past? I certainly you and I have worked in it. I can't remember it being on our CRM systems. There's some practical things as well as the stuff about value propositions. But the point about triaging, I think, is really, really important. I think you you were the first person, Tom, who alerted me to the EFI, the Electronic Frailty Index. And I wonder if companies, apart from some that have got particular reasons why they, they were interested in that. But um, there's a plethora of those things now. So when we talk about market access and when we talk about uptake, you know, is, is it the is it the senior doctor now who's going to make a decision on that, or is it the reason why Mr. Thorne gets an operation or gets a certain drug? It's because I don't fall into some category. So people are, what can you do? It's a bit like the um, this is the importance of that document on the rationing that we did. Is some years ago that was unthinkable. Mm. But we're used to now, it's been installed, nationally held, consistent, we're now into compound and control, and these things will be policed. Mm. And with, with the introduction or the acceleration, if you will, of, of integrated care systems and primary care networks coming in as well, do you think that's going to accelerate that move as well, that things, decisions will be made at an ICS level and impact a, a broader population then? Yeah. One, one of the many reasons I'm glad I'm not in an NHS management role now is um, who, who will have to go out to the local ITV news in the West Midlands or the South West or Yorkshire and explain now why certain treatments are not going to happen. I, I, I don't think that's going to be anybody from uh, London's uh, offices at NHSC. I think that's going to be somebody in ICS. I, I could even see, um, recently I've used a phrase I haven't used for about eight years, and that is clinical senate. Okay. Okay. Could so you expand I, I on that? Well, I think if, if, I, if, if I was um, a director of commissioning in an ICS, 
and we were going to make some very difficult decisions about the um, the uptake of prostate cancer and about elderly men on our patch. Um, I'd be setting off the clinical senate to come up with a policy in that. And then so when we are ready to go on the ITV news and get hold of the goals, then we've got um, then we've got a professor from the teaching hospital who's doing it, who chaired the group. Mm. So I know that, that sounds very cynical, but I think some very difficult decisions are going to have to be made. And one of the starting points of that is, let's go back to first principles on this. When you're in ICS, you balance the budget across an ICS. Yeah. So where you work, Tom, where you live, you've got Hull, York, Scarborough, the North Yorkshire Moors, Grimsby. You couldn't get a more varied patch of places. So an ICS is balancing the budget across. What that will probably mean in practice is money is going to be taken out of Hull and it's going to be used in Scarborough or taken out of Scarborough and put in York. And there's going to be some very difficult decisions. So things like things like clinical senates and at a local level, PCN clinical directors are going to be brought into some very, very difficult decisions. Mm. So something that's just jumped into my head, we've seen also yesterday that the people plan published and there's lots yeah. of talk in there about distributed leadership and having a supportive and permissive environment to help people do things differently, change things, have a, have a bit more support from their organisations. Do you think that might be a ploy to get people on board with this this idea that it's going to have to be a lot of tough decisions and it's a, it's a way to help people feel better about making those decisions. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry to sound so kind of, it sounds cynical, it's not meant to be, it's realistic. I, I think that at first it sounds a little bit like double speak, but it's not when you're inside the NHS. So it's saying, congratulations, Tom, you're, you're now um, um, a director on the ICS for uh, Humber Coast and Vale where you live and um, so now you've got freedom to within that to act within it but that freedom is I'm in London at NHSEI and I'm saying Tom to balance the books you're gonna have to go from six A and E's down to two and you've got complete freedom to decide where those two are going to be mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, yeah and yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of so in London there's going to be some hard decisions that somebody's going to go out to some very famous hospitals and say, you're not going to be running um, cardiovascular surgery, you're not going to have PEDS um, or whatever. Um, so you, you will have freedom to act within a certain framework. And I, that's where I think most NHS people will see that's what they think that means. Yeah, OK. And that, that's really interesting because we've had conversations in the last week or two about in some areas how those service moves are already starting to take place and they're very much being driven locally with some services being stopped or moved altogether and and sort of talk almost of, of local horse trading about you can have this service we'll take that service it's better for the consultants if they're here there or everywhere um you mentioned also the independent sector also there's been uh, through through the publications this week talk about increasing diagnostic capacity, uh, enhanced discharge arrangements, increased reliance on 111. So lots of uh, potentially yeah. non-NHS organisations coming into that party. Um, can you see how those conversations are going to be managed? Are they going to be managed locally? Is it going to become a bit of a bun fight for, for taking care of people or, or will there be coordination? I think it's, it's a mix of national and uh, local factors. So take NHS 111. Um, that's a really good example, Tom, and, and we could spend an hour just talking about NHS 111. I'd, I'd, I'm struggling to think of something that's more significant to the audience that's out there now that's less familiar, okay? So I'm wondering how many companies, not a criticism, because the same could be said of MTech Access, when was the last time we looked at the algorithms and what they say? So if I ring up and say, uh, I'm a middle-aged man and I've got a certain symptom, okay? Um, it is a national algorithm across England of how that call handler handles my call. You can have local 111, but quite often, I live in the north of England, I could ring up, the person answering me could be in Hampshire. Mm. Right? So people don't understand enough about these systems. Now, in a world where that call handler can actually book me in with my GP and explain to the GP directly why they, they booked in an appointment for me to see that GP, 
I think companies need to be much more aware of this and who the providers of 111 are, because we both know there's several providers. There's one main one, but there's several. And I think we've got to see this. This is all part of the integrated aspect of the NHS. You know, you, you and I often sit down and we um, or we do it now through t through this kind of medium. And we say, there's NICE, there's SMC, there's that, there's the formulary, there's that. And we work our way through and it ends up with somebody ringing up and saying, I've just been started on a drug and then um, it does this. And I've had terrible diarrhea or headache since. What does the call handler say? Do they say stop taking that drug immediately, go and see your GP? Do they say it's going to be okay? Do they say go along to your local chemist? You know, these things are just as important as the NICE guidance or something that the GMMG says. Yeah. And it, it, it's about the peripheral vision that we all need to have. So I know I haven't answered everything there, I don't want to go to, but just that one aspect of 111, I don't think there's a company listening to this, including us, who shouldn't be. That's one example. You know, then other things that we should be focused on, like the rationing, is there's so many things at the moment that we really need to urgently drill into. Yeah, and there's probably huge amounts that comes through 111 or that, that goes to 111 that doesn't actually come through the other end. It doesn't translate into a into HES or into practice data because it's yeah. it's closed off there and then it's it's resolved on the phone. So it might be that that call which names a specific medicine or a specific condition or a specific problem that then isn't isn't counting any statistics beyond that so um yeah that'd be, be really interesting to see uh how far 111 goes because it's it's kind of nominated particularly in light of what matt, matt hancock said yesterday about every consultation should be remote at first and 111 is going to be a large part of that and, and triaging before anyone goes to A&E as well. Yeah, and I, I just just quickly on that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think how many people listening here have been in a 111 call centre, okay? Because when you go into them, yeah, you've got call handlers who work into strict algorithms. Sitting behind every, what, four or five of them is a very experienced, it's, 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 it's somebody a bit like me, an older nurse, okay, in their, in their sort of 50s, uh, but much better than proper nurses who have been around a lot. And, and they're sitting there and they're monitoring the calls um, and they don't necessarily work to algorithms. It's one of the fictions. And you have doctors there as well. And it, you think, so what are they saying? When somebody says, oh, I've, got, I've got an adverse event potentially, or I don't feel very well, or I want advice. Um, these things can be crucial. And it, it, it is just, let's not get too caught on with it, but it's, it's one small example. Um, and I, I, I wonder if companies out there know, well, who runs who runs 111? And as yeah. you said, I don't think there's any limit to what Matt Hancock will want to put through 111. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so one, one question that was submitted in advance that I think we've touched on, but we, there might be a bit of scope for further explanation, was what, what are the top three priorities that will make the difference to improving the capacity management in the NHS? Are there a couple of things that you could call out there? Because I think probably we've, we've maybe even got to three, but what would you think are the most important? Things? Yeah, and, I, and I'm trying to give practical examples rather than just say phrases. Like it's tempting to say, well, um, uh, self-care, you know. And what you think, what does that mean? Well, like Boris Johnson saying now, well, let's all lose weight. Well, yeah, cheers, thanks. Um, social prescribing. So when we break that down, what people are hoping and what's been invested in, remember, um, you know, one of the basic messages, I'm sure most of the people listening know this, but perhaps they don't. PCNs have accelerated during COVID. PCNs have been cemented during COVID and the other thing that surprises me, you, Tom, as well, when we talk to people, our clients and companies, they don't realize how fast the pace has been on recruitment. So you mentioned before, I'm, I'm in working at PCN. We've got 11 practices, 80,000 patients. We've got four social prescribing link workers. And they, if you talk to anybody in our PCN, I think they probably say they've been the most valuable thing that we've had during COVID. And the GPs just say things like they've been an absolute godsend. Where would we have been without them? And you can go all over the country and, you know, you're not in there, Tom. It's probably the same for you. So I think let's not use words, phrases like self-care. What on earth does that mean? Let's break it down into what it actually means. And what it actually means is things like social prescribing, those link workers being out there. And again, what are they saying? What are they saying to newly diagnosed COPD patients, type 2 patients? 
they are the main point of contact of the NHS. They are the main trusted advisor. And for the patients out there, they are a really trusted advice. So what they say about an inhaler, a drug, an outpatient appointment, a future diagnosis, they are absolutely crucial. So I think let's use practical things rather than rhetorical phrases. Social prescribing, I think the rationing we've already talked about. Another thing we haven't talked about and we just mentioned quickly, remote consultations. Let's, in the same way as we break down self-care into things that actually matter in practice, what does remote consultations really mean? Because again, really good people have been out there, you haven't been out to see customers, and you might have the impression that the, the whole of Britain's now using apps and the most incredible software. The reality is that most of those remote consultations have been telephone calls, mm. yeah? old-fashioned telephone calls using a plastic handset or a mobile phone, not even at this level of Teams. So, you know, let's just break it down into what is really happening out there. Um, so I think those are three, if I mentioned the, the, the three most important things. One is remote consultations, affects primary and secondary care, but it has to be taken down to what is really happening. We need to be honest about it. And the docs hate it. Mm. They absolutely hate it. Like this thing, I was a little anecdote I was saying before. Um, one example in self-care, social prescribing, because I, I think the next time we get um, a policy guidance, they will extend the social prescribing ability of PCNs even further because it's so successful and so cost effective. And then the third thing is this whole aspect of rationing, how yeah. waiting times and other things are going to be used now and the independent sector and all those things we talked about. Yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on there. And I think the, just coming back to the remote consultations, but or virtual consultations, um, I think we're starting to see some of sort of the, the unintended consequences, as it were, of that. Um, I was speaking with a, a nurse the other day who is, is really starting to struggle now because there's no small talk, there's no niceties, it's straight into a clinical consultation that's, that's a lot harder to have because you're, it feels less personal, it feels like you're being more judgmental, uh, it's straight into sort of asking people what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it and doing that back to back um, seems to be a lot more taxing than than having patients back to back because it's uh, you, you don't have sort of those physical breaks and that, that personal touch so I think there's a lot that needs to be done around that as well isn't there in, in terms of not just making these things happen but actually using them in a responsible way so this it's interesting the comments from yesterday um yeah. how that's all going to play out yeah i'm hearing every day hear the same kind of anecdotes to support what you said and just to illustrate it for people who might you know think let's take a routine thing in primary care um a woman's in front of a clinician and says i think i might be pregnant the clinician then does a test and says yes you are Every clinician in Britain then knows they don't say congratulations. They say, so how do you feel about that? Yeah. Doing that, and you can get a variety of responses. Doing that through Teams, doing that through phone, that's an yeah. awful lot different than sitting there with somebody. And yeah. then you get into all the stuff about physical examination. And um, people went into primary care, people went into medicine and secondary care. Okay, doctors, nurses, they can be funny. There's all kinds of subcultures, but they like people. They like the contact. It's not just the accuracy of a diagnosis of being laying hands on people and that kind of stuff. They actually like the human contact. So I think, uh, yeah, people are really struggling with it. And the impression has been given that the NHS is completely in love with new technologies. But as we said, the factual thing even, most of those consultations are on the phone. It's hardly new technology. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And we, we've got a few more questions to get through, so we're going to take a bit of a left yeah. step. I'm going to try and segue that a lot of the stuff around remote consultations was uh, relating to information governance and that a lot of the constraints were taken away to enable that data sharing and um, sort of a, a flexibility or an acceptance that it had to happen to, to enable acceleration do you see and there's been relaxation of, of all sorts of governance around the nhs do you see that coming back in and and if so what would be the impact of uh, sort of that increased yeah there's there's a really good document isn't it um um by the rcgp and the rcp a joint document and it's all about video consultations and things so it's unusually for me 
some of that governance has to come in and you advocate it you know the, um, an obvious thing is um, we've now got GP practices that have got photos sent to them of undressed children by well-meaning parents who are worried about I don't know um, the shape of their, their their kids spine or um, a rash that they've appeared and that leads to all kinds of consequences um, we if we'd been talking before Christmas, one of the things that you and I were eulogising about was group consultations. How do you do that over a safe setting now, you know, when you think that somebody could just walk away from the screen as we're doing now and they've got a relative sitting in the corner and you've had a group consultation where people have been disclosing personal stuff. So I think some of the governance has to come back in um, and it's right that it does. Um, we What we haven't specifically addressed is a question we're often asked, what can pharma do? What can MedDeck do? What can we do in our roles? And that is one of the roles to try and help people through the practicalities of this. And I, I think it's where the key customers are out there. Well-meaning people are trying to find the right solutions and they're aware of the risks. Um, and we're into new territory. So mm. unfortunately, some of the governance has to come in, but hopefully not in a way it was. That one of the key things, going back to PCNs, they, you know, they, there's hardly... Um, uh, a PCN in the country now that doesn't have a data sharing agreement. So any clinician who's working in a practice can go in another practice, they can look at each other's notes and you think, thank goodness, it's taken 80 years for us to get in this position, but it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in a broader sense around the governance piece, um, think about performance management and uh, we touched on sort of PBR and the financial bits earlier. Is there an expectation that there's going to be more performance management coming back in yeah. where, where trusts have made a different kind? The, the NHS will never release that. I used the phrase before, command and control. At the start of this, I saw people in the NHS, and I'm afraid, you know, some of it is to do with age, because it comes with experience and precedent of people saying, we've got block contracts. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to do quaff now. We're not being measured on it. The waiting times being measured across the ICS are great. And in, almost within days later, it's, oh, yeah, but um, we're now getting the block contract sent down the line. So they've just reduced it by 2% from what we were expecting. Or, yes, um, the waiting times across the ICS, but apparently our organization, we're an outlier. And I think something that is uh, really important in this, fortunately, I'm in a PCN with a clinical director knew what was coming even before COVID and was prepared for it. And I think one of the next things in primary care is some of the PCN clinical directors are going to realise that part of their job is going to be performance management as well. And I don't think it'd be too long before that involves the drug budget as well. So it's a different kind of performance regime that's coming in. Yeah, okay. It's, it's the kind of performance regime that people like me were old enough to remember before 1990 in the internal market. And it's, it's, it's going to mean you don't have freedoms, you don't have permissions at an individual organisational level, but there'll be expectations upon you to deliver to a more corporate collective whole. And, mm -hmm. and so the performance management will be just as strong as it was before, just be so different measures. Will, will, will that be sort of led at an ICS board level? Is that the, the expectation? Yeah, or, um, if you live without complicating it, if you live in a big ICS like the one I live, they'll either split the ICS or they'll call it an ICP. You know, the, my personal view, personal view, is around about one and a half million is the right size. So, you know, where I live, the ICS is more than twice as big as that. Where you live, it's absolutely spot on. Um, I think it's it's about the size of a of a teaching hospital in its hinterland, and that 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 will decide the nature of it. But I yeah. I think that's where the performance management will sit. And, and in, in, sorry, practically, because they'll they'll do the budget at that level to suit yeah. out the budget. Yeah, okay. And in practical terms, do you think an ICS board at that level is, is going to have the, the ability to manage? What are you hearing? Is, is that going to be a likely... Yeah. likely the, the, the model they'll go back to, I, I would expect, is um, many people my age will be saying, well, that's an SHA. Hmm. That's, an, that's an effective SHA. Like, you know, some of the SHAs weren't. Um, but some of them had a very a tight grip on what's going on. So I think it will be that level. So you might run a hospital, you might run an ambulance service, you might run a, um, a PCN. You're going to be sitting around the table with someone running the, I, the ICS who's going to say our waiting times are, are wrong or our finance is wrong and it's your organisation. 
mm. that's dragging down the rest of us. That, yeah. That's the way it used to be when we had district health authorities and things, and I think that's what we'll return to. Yeah, okay. So so think about that sort of control total, that, that can cr control yeah. total of the population health budget. We've had a, a couple of questions, I suppose, that relate to value, which we touched on earlier. Um, one of them is sort of thinking about the move towards PLICS, um, different ways of reporting things. I, I think there's a, we've heard that activity hasn't been recorded in the same way through COVID as it may have been previously. Obviously, there's the move to block contracts. Are we likely to see different perceptions of value, thinking more about patients and pathways than, than episodic care? Yeah, I think this happened already. You know, one of the things that we've been doing recently is, is basically setting up little calls. We call them all kinds of different things, but we'll be in this kind of environment and we've got a client there and we've got people from the NHS. And a consistent thing that comes out is that change. I think some of the verbatims we've heard is people saying, um, oh, hang on a minute, you, you've got to get with, you've got to understand we now think as an ICS. Yeah, I think I was telling you, I was in one yesterday afternoon where a director from a huge, slightly arrogant tertiary trust, you know, with that, that kind of reputation, uh, not the person, but the organization. And, and they were saying, no, no, what the business case is now, it's not just how it affects the hospital. How does that affect the community nurses, the GPs, the ambulance? There's absolutely no way that we would do anything that has a secular benefit to us and not right across the board. So I, th I think the, the the change is there already. When it's put into um, into structural concrete terms, probably next year when we've got legislation, uh, we'll feel it even more. But I, I think it's there already. And congratulations to the person who mentioned about clicks, because when you construct a business case now, what matters is not the price system of tariffs. What matters is what is the real cost. Mm. So. Um, and it's no good saying, so instead of going in a hospital, the GP's going to do it, I'll be seen in a community trust, or someone's going to come out peripatetically. Um, you know, and so as our friend was saying last night, at every level now, it's no longer the organisation, it's the population, it's team NHS. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's a, a bit of a follow-up to that. So the question was, how, how can economic evaluations be made more relevant to local commissioning decisions? There, yeah, I mean, that's the answer. They just need to be. And um, you've got to look at, it doesn't necessarily, some of it could be, but let's not kid ourselves, longitudinally over a lifetime, that's always going to challenge people on the modelling. But what you can do initially is immediately start to think of the whole chain from NHS 111 and community pharmacy through to ICU. Um, because like our friend last night, she's a director in a huge tertiary centre and she's thinking that way. Um, I think typical PCNs are as well. So the, you, you have to think of the impact. It's no longer good enough, and we at MTech Access have to learn about this as well. You can't have a budget impact model and say, inpatients, outpatients, oh, there's a little bit of A&E data. There you go, that's telling you it. It's got to be a comprehensive picture from now on. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was having a conversation there, I think it was last week, with um, yeah, a senior trust director talking about the fact that they are now looking at how they can get the data from other parts of the system from social care from um, community services from from all the other parts of the system because actually now that really matters when they're looking at moving a service 50 miles away what's the impact does it mean carers are going to be coming along how, how do they assess all of these different things and then you lay on top the capacity restraints and social distancing and the, the need to work in different ways and suddenly every value story becomes completely different doesn't it it's, it's yeah I, I, it's, I think um yesterday a gp was talking to me and told me an anecdote i won't but basically it involved them going out on a home visit in a rural area and and the, the killing phrase i remember verbatim was and by the time i got back i realized i'd been gone over two hours right. and the point of the story was they were saying it, it i had no value out there it would have been better if the social prescribing link work had gone out right yeah. they earn what 10% of a GP salary, of a senior GP, mm. perhaps literally, you know, um, certainly uh, no more than 15% of a GP salary. They say not only would it have been cost effective, it would have been more effective. Mm. And I think, again, we at MTech Access, what models have we got around social prescribing link workers? Mm. Where's that built into value proposition? Where is that in budget impact models or advanced budget notification? Mm -hmm. And it really 
it's good to have it in now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, another couple of the questions that we've had relate to sort of the focus on outcomes as well. And I think for a long time, everyone's talked about focusing on outcomes, but the the systems, the financial systems in particular, haven't supported that. Do you see that coming more sharply into focus? And will it be traditional outcomes or are people going to be looking at a slightly broader interpretation of outcomes? Patient experience. I think it's the latter if they can come up with a methodology. So they want to, and this is an invitation for all of us to 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 go forward and say, well, we've uh, yeah, we've devised these. Our health economics uh, advisors devised these. Um, this is something they've used in New Zealand or Canada, and we think it's transferable. The, um, as you said, the ideas and have been there before, but the rules didn't allow us to do it. The rules are being removed. And the willingness is there because it's not a, it's not a choice now of whether someone goes up into hospital for an outpatient. The hospital can't receive them. Mm. They have to find something else to do. So the um, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to make it too complicated. I think at whatever level people work, they can help to deliver insights into this. Like what what is the relative value of a GP spending two hours going on a home visit and then not being able to do it anyway versus a social prescribing link worker? Mm. Um, at what point does it make sense for a nurse to go out into somebody's house and give them an injection? At what point is it, if, if I have a treatment and it's uh, once a week instead of three times a day? So all these things that we've wanted to discuss before and then somebody said, yeah, but the tariff doesn't show that. Or, mm. um, you know, um, we, we still got the nurse to pay. People are up for these discussions because they're having them internally. And going back to Plix, if people don't know about what Plix is doing, that's trying to understand these costs. The key is in the acronym, patient level, yeah, costing systems. It's about individual patients at granular detail. It's really interesting. I mean, like you and I have often talked how soon that's gonna come into primary care because good practices have always done it. They haven't called it that. But they've always looked at who sees who about what. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's been a better time to, uh, to to engage in these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the, the conversation I was having around the outcomes piece the other day was was similar, and it was a case of there's going to be the ability or the incentive to look much more closely at what is actually having a positive impact. And again, it speaks to that not so much rationing idea, but stopping things that aren't being effective so if you're running a service in a hospital or if you're using certain people or, or even if you're doing certain procedures if you're better able to measure the outcomes and, and i think that's where the uh, the procedures of limited clim clinical value comes from itself isn't it let's really look at what's happening are these patients better off is that you know are, are these things really having an impact so um there is a you know i suppose an expectation that it might be more stopping than, than necessarily starting and that's yeah just just you know um if you can eliminate steps on a pathway mm. so every operational person every forward thinking person in the nhs is thinking about that so it's stopping an activity stopping an adverse event that leads to an activity this this is an this is that's an outcome now worth buying um so i, I yeah i think There'll be people out there who think, well, before I was banging my head against a brick wall with some of this stuff, there was a head of medicines optimization from a CCG. They were just saying, well, this is my budget. This is the formulary. Things are changing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we've, we've just got a few minutes left now. I think we've uh, made pretty good headway through the questions that were sent in to us. Um, we have had a few questions about the role of industry going forward. And you touched on it briefly there in, in terms of how industry, pharma companies, medtech companies could support the NHS. What do you see as some of the challenges, some of them are pretty obvious, but if you could just talk to some of the challenges that lie ahead, I suppose, in terms of the engagement piece. Yeah, well, part of it, which uh, again, we've talked a lot about this week, is we're in a strange time, aren't we? Where um, I, w I wouldn't be very good if I was working in the ABPI or ABHI. I'd probably get every, the whole industries into all kinds of trouble. Because, um, but I think a decision's got to be made about who who can you guys talk to. So, are you able to go out to talk to a social prescribing link worker? They might be employed by um, um, a social enterprise. They would be in York, I think, where you are, Tom, wouldn't they? Um, 
when you go and talk to somebody at Macmillan, can you talk to uh, people at Marie Curie? Um, are you able to talk to Care UK Inspire? Are you able to engage with these organisations? The, the expectation within the NHS, and, the, and I, by that I mean the wider NHS, is people would be surprised that you're not. And I think soon you're going to struggle because people will say, um, you know, hopefully we're going to be back to, oh, we want to talk to you. We're getting all our diabetes, diabetes project group together locally. And then you're going to encounter, you go along for the meeting, either electronically or for real, and there's people sitting around the table and you think, I'm, I'm not sure if I should be in the same room as these people. So I think some of it is, is there's governance on both sides, and that's one of the things the industry needs to look at. Um, I think um, it's almost like be careful what you wish for, that we're now able to talk about things like outcomes, integration, wider stuff. We've got flexibility on financial regimes, all kinds of roles out there. Uh, you know, that we haven't mentioned. I mentioned social prescribing. In the PCNs that we work in now, we've got uh, physicians, associates, community paramedics, uh, advanced nurse practitioners of all kinds of different shapes and sizes. You know, in, in my PCN, we've got four paramedics who prescribe. These are new audiences. So it's great. Be careful what you wish for. Have we got the tools to actually engage with these people? Are we ready? Are we trained? Are the brand teams giving us the right information, the right guidance? Do we feel safe out there in the field? Have we got the right arguments? So it's an exciting time, but yeah, there's some challenges, um, all challenges that can be overcome. And, and in terms of actually getting to, to see those people and speak to those people, um, obviously social distancing is, is in place at the moment, we're all very familiar with that. Um, there are clear challenges about just being able to go and see someone, uh, particularly those in clinical roles. Is it a case of looking for non-traditional people, so ICS type people or those people that are in um, roles looking at how things are done rather than necessarily those that are doing the doing? Uh, and, and if so, what's the best way to get Yeah, that's that, gosh, that's a really tricky one, Tom, isn't it? Because um, you know, I'm sure most people listening know that you don't go along to somewhere and there's um, a tower block somewhere and it's called ICS and it's got lots of people in. They're still employed in CCGs and CSUs and NHS England and all kinds of, you know, trusts and things. So it's good old fashioned key account management of, you know, I'm talking to Tom, he's a respiratory lead in the CCG. And we nice opening question. I got a rapport with him and he says, well, of course, as you probably know, I'm, I'm also, um, you know, I'm heading up the ICS group now looking at long-term care. And you say, so, oh, really? Who else is on that? Or oh, Professor whatever. And, you know, do you know Sandra, the, the specialist nurse? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get a sense of how these new organisations are forming. You know, and I think people are up, in our experience recently, for the, the people listening who are all skilled people, you can still do things electronically. Um, people out there in the NHS are really eager to communicate and engage. They're fed up. They're frustrated. They got time. Earlier today, I was dealing with um, some clients who were pleasantly surprised to find out that a lot of NHS people, they like the contact in the day. They don't want it in the evening because they're sitting there like you guys are having loads of webinars and emails. And it's strangely tiring. So I, I don't think there's an obstacle if, if your companies are OK about it, about having contact in this kind of way. And you just need to explore it in that old fashioned sense. And as, as Tom's saying, you find out the new roles people will say, oh, I'll put you through to the manager of the social prescribing link workers. You've got something sensible to say. The key to it, I think, is the lexicon, all right? Is, is, is no longer ringing people up and saying, I want to talk to you about the sort of things we used to say before, or sometimes using those words that will differentiate you in the right, wrong way. It's about knowing things like, you know, PBRs go in, what you're going to do about cough, what you're going to do about the flu campaign, whatever you're in. Um, How's your PCN developing? How are the new roles setting in? Or in secondary care, the, the kind of equivalents. It's, it's just always good people differentiate themselves with that language. And it's also a case because, I mean, it, it can be harder um, to communicate virtually for, you know, without having uh, yeah. physical prompts and those sorts of things. So when communicating, I think some, something that we've heard is it's, it's really important, like you say, to to be informed, have the right message, to have something to offer. So is it about making that contact more impactful rather than just a bridge to develop a relationship? 
Yeah, and don't make assumptions. So much has changed. So, you know, the, the things like immediately saying, well, um, of course the CCG will be at the centre of that. That's probably not true anymore. Um, you know, so, so it's anybody who's opening up and, and investigating, exploring all the things that you guys would be fantastic salespeople about, this is a time that will reward that. If you're the kind of person who basically just blurts out a script, you're going to have a problem, even more so than before, because it's so easy for people to just close things down and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to go. And, and actually, they're doing their emails while they're talking to you. You, you, know, you know that. You don't need me to tell you. But um, if, if you're skilled people, you can still get in front of people metaphorically, because believe me, as me and Tom would say, it's, I think it's actually easier to have contact with healthcare professionals at the moment because they're so eager for answers. So if, if you're the right kind of person, people want to talk to you and they are fed up, frustrated, and they haven't got the answers. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much, David. So that, that brings us to the end of our webinar for this week, uh, for, the, for this month. Uh, every month from now on, we're going to have senior leaders, so sort of C-suite in, in the current lexicon, uh, leaders from across the NHS, from primary care, secondary care, mental health, a whole, whole range of different organisations to share their perspectives on what's going on. Uh, we're finalising contractual arrangements with next month's guests, so I can't, can't share anything at the moment. We've got to go through comms teams and all sorts of things with, with these types of people. So um, more will follow um, within the next couple of weeks. Um, so hopefully you'll sign up for that and uh, we'll see you next time. So thanks for listening. Thanks again to David. See you soon. Thank Bye. you, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.